Shall we pray? God, our Father, Lord, we rejoice at the thought of you, God. Lord, you're glorious and you're awesome. Eternal God, unchanging. We praise you. We thank you for your goodness, God. We thank you for your mighty power. We thank you for your wisdom and your knowledge that are unsearchable, God. Oh, Lord, we are grateful that you have redeemed us from our sins, that you have sent your son Jesus to give his life as a sacrifice, as a ransom, as a payment for our sins. And Lord, those of us who were estranged and have now trusted Christ by your power and by your spirit, we are so grateful, God, for all that you have done for us. And we rejoice in the salvation that you have given to us. And we praise you and we glorify you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. We ask, Lord, that you would now enlighten our eyes, help us to understand all of the great promises and blessings that you have given to us in Christ. Open our eyes to see more clearly, I pray. Oh, Lord, we uh, thank you for the privilege that we have to be ministers of reconciliation. That, Lord, we can go out and preach the message that you have sent Jesus to die for sinners. And for all who will repent and trust you, God, they can be saved. And so, Lord, we ask uh, for uh, the mission team that's going out this week. We pray that you would give them good fruitful labor, Lord, that as they go, they would be blessed and encouraged by uh, the things that you show them there, that they would grow in grace and in knowledge, in deeper relationship with you, God. Father, as they go, that they would encourage uh, the missionaries who are there for Doug and Jan, God, that you would just... uh, Uh, Just encourage them again in the faith. And uh, Father, we just uh, pray that you would uh, uh, cause their ministry to be effective. And uh, we thank you for the privilege that we have to go and to help in this this, uh, ministry. Oh Lord, we honor you and we bless you. We thank you for your rich promises to us. Give us now eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we've been talking about the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ. And um, as we've been going through this series since September, we talked about the fact that the gospel has many forms. And, uh, of course, we've talked at length about that, and by now I think you know what I mean when I say the gospel has many forms. And so... Because the gospel has many forms, it has many facets, it has many elements to it, we need to be careful not to reduce the gospel down to some or, or one specific truth and, and then necessarily cause the gospel to be out of balance because we're focusing on one element or one form more than another. Although at times it will be necessary for us to do that, right, as we explain the different forms and the different elements, even as we've been going through this lesson, 
at each time we focus on a different form or element of the gospel, of course, we're, we're highly emphasizing that, that part so that we can come to understand it. But when we talk about the gospel as a whole, we need to understand that it's expressed in many, many different ways, and there are different elements to it that are essential to the understanding of it. And so <clears throat> the gospel is not just a warning. It is also a promise of blessing, right? And it's not just a call to repentance, right? But also a, a, a summons to healing. It's a summons to comfort. It's a summons to rest. Amen? And it's not just the promise of uh, a kingdom, but with that kingdom comes a king. And then the gospel is a summons to uh, surrender our life to a new Lord and Master, who is Jesus. Amen? And uh, <clears throat> if you will, the gospel is not just that. It's also an offer of eternal life. And it's an offer to be released from sin and death and to live forever in heaven in the presence of God. Amen? And so it has all of these elements in, in many forms. Well, <clears throat> What we've been uh, discussing recently is the fact that the gospel really is um, an offer of hope, and it's an offer of future blessing, and it is, if you will, an offer of blessing beyond our wildest imagination, and we need to understand this so that we don't just go out breathing fire and repentance and warnings of hell without telling people that it's also a promise of eternal bliss and joy and all good virtue that we could possibly imagine is to be experienced by those who obey the gospel. Amen? Not only that, we could spend days and weeks and months trying to describe the greatness and the splendor of the promises that are in the gospel for the believer. Amen? They are many and they are manifold. And we shouldn't just, for instance, because we look at one form of the gospel where it might be abused and we might see, for instance, in word faith ministries or something like that, we see an overemphasis on the blessing and the promise. And, and they even try to bring a lot of heavenly blessing down into the earthly realm and try to apply it. And, and, and there's some error that's involved with that, obviously. Um, but just because we see those errors, we shouldn't then be quick to just dismiss the fact that the gospel is promising us tremendous prosperity. And, and of course, when I say that, I'm not just talking about here in the earthly realm. And, and not only that, the gospel doesn't necessarily promise prosperity here in the earthly realm. In fact, you may get your head chopped off for believing it. True? But however, however... The promise of prosperity is sure and absolute in the gospel. In fact, you are going to be prospered if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in ways beyond your wildest comprehension. Are you with me? And we're going to talk about that today some. And But, you know, we have to understand these things in light of, of biblical teaching. However... So the gospel is not just a warning and a call to repentance and lordship and, and those things. It is those things entirely, but it's also an offer of tremendous blessing and promise and hope and future. Amen? It's an offer of comfort. It's an offer of healing. 
It's an offer that, if you will, heals us from our malady, from the great disease of sin. And it makes us whole again. Amen? And so this is, uh, uh, Christ is our healer. And, and again, I'm not, you know, focusing on necessarily physical healing, although I do believe God heals people sometimes when he wants to. <laughs> right? But the fact of the matter is, every Christian believer is headed directly for the ultimate healing. Amen? And so we'll talk a little bit about that as well. Um, but this is something we need to learn how to articulate to people. We need to be able to articulate the blessings of God that are held out in the gospel. Because, you see, people in this world are dying without hope. They really don't have any hope. They're headed to the grave. Life is falling apart. And sometimes that's more clear to them than at other times. Right? But they need to know that there is, there is a hope and there is a future that God promises to all who will come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? And we need to be able to, de- to describe to them what that is. You know, if I say to you that Christ is our healer, can you recount the ways to me that Christ heals us? Can you describe how the Bible says that Jesus is going to make me whole? Okay? Well, I want to kind of help you catalog some of that today as we kind of go further and talk about some of these promises. Last week, we we talked about the fact that, you know, that the gospel is an invitation to healing. And it's an invitation to drink freely, those who are thirsty to drink and those who are hungry to eat. But that God is offering this invitation freely to all. And that the chief blessing that comes to us in the gospel And the chief offer that God is giving to us is himself. And so that God is offering himself to us to be our exceeding great reward. And even so much so that he says he's going to come to live and dwell inside of us. And this is exactly what happens in regeneration. God, the Holy Spirit, comes to live inside of our being so that we are now called the temple of the living God. As it says in 2 Corinthians 6.16, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And I was telling you that what a tremendous privilege this is, that we can have God as our God, that he comes to be our God personally. He comes to be that God who is in heaven, who is almighty God, the almighty powerful God, and that we possess him personally as our God. But more than that, and more intense than that, is the thought that we shall be his people. Now think about that. And God is committing to us that we shall be his people. And let me tell you something, God cares for his own. Okay? And and we're going to just talk about some of that at length today and and talk about how that works. But does this promise from God not, if you will, overarch that whole thought that God cares for his people? Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so we were talking about this when we ended last week and saying that this is an amazing promise that God gives. 
And, and friends, this is a gospel promise. That if you will come to Christ in repentance and faith, God will work every single thing in your life for your ultimate good. Amen? And just think about how you could use that as a springboard then to tell people of how God cares for us and how God has cared for you. And it even becomes a personal testimony at that point, doesn't it? Because everybody who's come to Christ has a testimony of how God has cared for them. Supernaturally, how he's worked the circumstances of their life for their good and for their benefit, right? And how uh, us Christians have great joy over this. And how we could describe it and recount it to others, and we should. And this is something we need to hold out when we're telling people about the gospel. It is very attractive, and it should attract people. And, and it's, a, it's a glorious message of hope, and it's what people are needing. They're dying in this world from a lack of hope. They're dying from a lack of loving care that God is offering in the gospel. And I quoted to you from Thomas Watson where he writes and he says, He who loves God and is called according to his purpose may rest assured that everything in the world shall be for his good. Why should a Christian destroy himself? Why should he kill himself with care when all things shall sweetly concur, yea, conspire for his good? The result of the text is this. All the various dealings of God with his children do by a special providence turn to their good. Amen? And that, in fact, is the promise of God for all those who will come to him, that he's going to take everything in your life and he's going to work it for your good. And I've learned to view my life through, through these lenses because I know that, you know, today I may be pretty comfortable, but calamity's coming tomorrow. How many of you are aware of that fact? If you're not, you need to live in awareness of that fact. Okay? Calamity is on its way. We're all headed to the grave, which means in this earthly existence, we're going to experience some trial and some trouble. Amen? Unless the Lord Jesus returns first. But even at the time of his return will be terrible, terrible days even as we're witnessing them come to pass. Things are escalating. Have you noticed? Well, it is a good and comforting promise that God's going to take no matter what we face, no matter what we walk through, no matter what fire, no matter what trial, no matter if the, the sea is foaming with surging and waves and the mountains are crumbling into the sea, God is our refuge and our strength. Amen? And, and family, that's a promise for us. And, and if God is not that for you, he needs to be. Why should you kill yourself with concern when underneath are the everlasting arms? Are you with me? Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. God will uphold you. And no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Amen? You cry out to God, he'll save you. He listens to those who cry to him. Amen? Whatever you're facing, cry out to God. Psalm 34:19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. You understand? Even the greatest thing that can test your life and your soul, you will be delivered out of, even if it's persecution unto death. Are you with me? Burn me at the stake. 
I wake up in glory. Are you with me? Again, Thomas Watson writes, and he says, Are we in great trouble? There is a promise that works for our good. I will be with him in time of trouble. Psalm 91.15 God does not bring his people into troubles and leave them there. He will stand by them. He will hold their heads and hearts when they are fainting. And there is another promise. He is their strength in time of trouble. Psalm 37.9 Oh, says the soul, I shall faint in the day of trial. But God will be the strength of our hearts. He will join forces with us. Either he will make his hand lighter or our faith stronger. Amen? Listen, the Lord will be with you. He will walk with you. Cry out to him. He will never fail you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. But he will, in fact, be your strength. Amen? Moreover, consider that all the promises of God, of who God is for his people in Scripture, mean that he is for us the very same thing. Now, I want you to consider this. When Paul writes in 2 Corinthians and he says that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that all the promises that God has made to his people are ours. We possess them and they are affirmative for us. Okay, And so here's what I'm saying. As a result of that, all of the promises in Scripture of who God is become ours. You understand what I'm saying? But not just who God is, but who God is for his people. How many of you have ever studied the names of God? Right? And it goes through and it catalogs the names of God. And you know that those names of God are related to very specific attributes that God has in relation to his people. Right? So for Abraham, he is the Lord who has provided. Right? He's Jehovah Jireh, his provider. Right? And on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And Abraham's son doesn't have to die because God has provided a lamb. Amen? And if you will, these names of God recount who God is for his people and in relation to his people. And so I've, you know, brought together a few scriptures here to express this. God himself is said to be for us our strength, our refuge, our hiding place, our stronghold, the defense of our lives. He gives so many analogies of who he is for us. Psalm 27 once says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Amen. And there is a promise that God is the defense of our life. That he is my salvation. He's my savior. He's my light. He gives light to my eyes and to my path. Amen. Or Psalm 18, 2 and 3, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. What do you mean, David? Could you make it a little more clear for me? Are you with me? You see who God is to him? And family, God is that to us. Amen. All of the promises that God has made are yes and amen in Christ. And he is these very things. Many of you have experienced this great need to have God as a deliverer. Amen? Maybe God has delivered you out of a great sin. Surely he has me. 
And uh, I want to tell you, are you caught in sin? God is a deliverer with a strong arm. Amen? And he can give you victory. He says, I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and then I am saved from my enemies. Amen? You see what the psalmist does? He calls upon the Lord. He calls upon the name of the Lord, and he is saved. Amen? And Paul writes, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen? We have simply to cry out to him. Amen? Psalm 28, verses 7 and 8. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. Therefore, my heart exults, and with my song I shall thank him. The Lord is their strength, and he is a saving defense to his anointed. Amen? Or how about this? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Philippians 4.9. Now, how many things is all things? <laughs> it's almost too good to be true, isn't it? It's so superfluous, it, it just overflows. It's like a well, a fountain that just continues to overflow. The blessing of God is something that never runs dry. Amen? Well, it is no small thing that God himself is our God and that he has promised to be for us the very strength of our lives. In fact, the scripture goes so far as to say that he has promised to meet all of our needs so that we will not be lacking anything we need. For instance, in Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Question. How many riches does God have in glory? Plenty, <laughs> right? And, and I want to ask you, can he meet your need? And has Paul promised to the Philippian Christians, and by way of that to you and to I, that God shall meet all of our needs? Amen. Did not Jesus tell us, why do you worry? See the little sparrow? Right, he says. He's not dying of care and worry, wondering how he's going to make the car payment. Amen. He says, God knows you need all these things. Aren't you more important than two sparrows, he says? Amen? It is entirely consistent with the promise of God. He's going to meet all our needs. Not only that, one day soon, he's going to glorify me. And I'll never have another need. Because I'll be immortal and imperishable. Amen? Glorious truth. The things that God has done, family, they're amazing. They are absolutely and utterly amazing. Psalm 34, 8-10, O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. You know what that means, right? No lack. There's no lack. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Amen? You see God's promise to meet your needs? They who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Amen? Glorious promise from God. 
about Romans 8, 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Amen. Amazing promises from God. But the blessings do not stop here. God does not leave us in our helpless state of sin and death, but he heals us and transforms us so that we begin to take on his very nature in ourselves. I want to talk to you just a minute about healing. Think about this, okay? I know we're very earthly and we're very temporal. And we like to think about healing in the sense of physical healing. Okay, and I've already said once today, I believe God heals people when he wants to. And so I think we ought to cry out to him for healing if we want to be healed. But ultimately, as we all know, that's God's business. And he does it when he wants to and how he wants to. Amen? But let me tell you something. Every single one of us is in great need of healing. Amen? We're dying, if you haven't noticed. Okay? We're headed for the grave. We're in bondage to decay and corruption. The flesh is wilting away. Right? You with me? And we're all in need of healing. And this God promises to those who obey the gospel. He promises healing. But I want to talk to you about the healing. Okay? Would you say that if God makes us immortal and imperishable, that he's healed us from sin and death? I would say so. Not only that, but he says in the scripture on multiple occasions that he is fashioning us in the likeness unto himself so that he is making us to be like him. So, you know, in my sin, what do I need to be healed from, right? Well, I mean, we could make a list probably a mile long, right? I mean, we could start cataloging my sins, right? But after God has finished and glorified me, okay, let me tell you, all those things, all those sins I catalog, all those things I'm subject to and bondage to decay, listen, he heals perfectly and makes me completely whole. Are you with me? I don't think we have in view the true scope of what, what, what a healing it is to become a Christian and to have the nature of God put inside of our hearts and then to be put on this path of sanctification which will shortly end in a glorified body where God says we're going to be transformed so that this earthly body, I think it's uh, Colossians 3.20, is going to be transformed to be like his glorious body. Are you with me? I mean, we are going to be healed, family. Healed like you never saw healing. Are you with me? It's a glorious thing. It's an absolutely glorious thing. So much so that we, the Bible says, become partakers of the divine nature. Let's talk about that. He has given us everything we need to become like him. We are said to become partakers of the divine nature and to be transformed into his image more and more as we grow in his grace and knowledge. And Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 2 and following, he says, 
Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, that's a mouthful. But consider what Peter is actually saying here. He's saying that, of course, grace and peace are multiplied to us in knowing God and in knowing Jesus. Amen? But then he says that God has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now, how many things is everything? Okay, now consider what we have everything for. We have everything for life. Okay? And we have everything for godliness. You know what that is, right? God's likeness. That's what the word means. It's an adverb. Godliness is is to be like God or God's likeness. You have everything you need to be like God. That's what it means, everything pertaining to godliness. His power has given you everything you need. In other words, the Word and the Spirit are sufficient to sanctify you. That's what Peter's saying, right? And to multiply upon you grace and peace, right? I'll talk more about that, but consider another scripture. How about in 2 Corinthians 3.18, where Paul writes, and he says, but we all... With unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Now, what is he saying? Well, there in the context there, he's talking about how Moses used to go up on the mountain and he'd speak with God and he'd come back down. His face was shining and they were freaking big time, right? They'd see Moses and they'd say, what in the world is this, right? And But then he goes on to talk about the fact that we are partakers of the new covenant, which is greater than the old covenant, right? And he kind of sums up that whole passage by saying, look, we are beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Okay, what does he mean? He means we see Jesus Christ manifested in the flesh, and we see Jesus Christ as recorded in the written word. And we are seeing the, 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 the virtue and the goodness and the glory of, of the Lord manifested before us. And he says we're beholding it as in a mirror. In other words, we're looking and gazing intensely on this image of God. Okay? And we're seeing it in relation to ourselves. That's what he's saying. Okay? And what are we seeing? The glory of the Lord. The virtue of God. The, the goodness of the outshining of the goodness of God. That's what we're seeing. Okay? When we see Jesus. And when we see the Word. We see the outshining of the goodness of God. Okay? And he, look, but look what he says. He says, we are being transformed into the same image. Into what same image? The same image of the outshining of the goodness of God. <laughs> See, what happens to a saint when he reads in the Bible and he realizes that God is merciful? Well, he begins to love mercy. And he begins to long for mercy. And he begins to hunger for mercy. So much so that he begins to be merciful. Take any virtue of God. That's what's happening to the saints. 
because the Spirit of God is in their heart, jealously desiring the virtue of God and transforming us and moving us from, from glory to glory. You see what's happening as we partake in the goodness of God through the Word by the Spirit? We're being transformed. That's what Paul says. That, that uh, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. You see that? I believe the Greek is metamorphi, or something very similar. Terry? Yeah, metamorphi, right? The idea, we're being changed, we're being morphed, we're being transformed into what? The same image. We're partaking in the divine nature we're becoming like Him. Remember Romans 8.29? For those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of His Son. Amen? The purpose for which we were made. <laughs> right? He's fashioning us in the likeness of His Son. Why? Because His Son is God. Right? I don't know if you've ever been on the Desiring God website. There's a little link right at the top of the right top corner. It says, Good News! God loves himself. Have you ever seen that? <laughs> Fascinating idea, right? But the point is, is that <clears throat> God is the only being for whom it is a good thing for him to glorify himself. Because God is perfectly glorious, and he's perfectly virtuous, and he's perfectly good. Therefore, for God to love anything less than himself would be for God to cease to be God. Because God is perfect and glorious and virtuous in and of himself. Therefore, he loves what is perfect and glorious and good. That's why his law is holy. Right? (laughs) That's because he is love. He is wisdom. He is knowledge. He is power. He is beauty. He is all of these things. Okay? And God exalts those things. Why? Because those are the perfect, glorious, virtuous things. That's the difference between good and evil. Virtue is good. Evil is wicked. Evil is the antithesis of all of those good attributes and nature of God. Are you with me? And so for God to love what is good is for God to love himself. Okay, are you with me? Now, how am I chasing that rabbit? <laughs> well, <clears throat> so the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that he's conforming us into the image of his son. And as this process is taking place, family, this is the gospel promise. That God's going to come to us. He's going to change us. He's going to heal us from our disease of sin. And he's going to make us and fashion us into his own likeness so that we become like him. Are you with me? Glorious promise. Glorious promise. Not only that, the Bible says we are partaking in the divine nature. Right? We are partaking, Peter says, through the great and magnificent promises, right? In order that, that, that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature. And Paul says, we are being transformed from glory to glory. Okay? Listen, every true Christian is in a process of being transformed into God's virtue, into God's glory. And ultimately, it's going to result in an immortal, imperishable body that can never die. That's what immortal means. Right? No longer subject to sin and death. 
right? Consider it in that place that God promises us that we're going. He says there'll be no more crying, no more dying, no more mourning, and no more pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Are you with me? Understand? It's a glorious, glorious thing. It's beyond our comprehension. As we follow Christ and walk in the Spirit, we are being changed and taking on His very nature. Now, here we're talking about the process of sanctification, right? So what we're saying is, once you get saved, God is saving us also on a continual basis by this transformation process. He's sanctifying us. He's fashioning us in the image of Christ. He's causing us more and more to partake of the divine nature. If you will, uh, before we came to Christ, we were descending. We were descending further and further down into the depth and mire of sin, which ultimately winds up in the bottomless pit and we fall forever away from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Okay, but we, that's, that's what was happening. Our sin was gaining a greater and greater grip in our life. We were descending into darkness and despair. And, and uh, uh, David describes it as the miry pit. Right? But you see, once we got saved, what happened was God turned that whole process on its head. And now we're ascending. We're ascending from glory to glory into that height where God is. Not only that, God has promised, he's, he's said to us, look, that uh, uh, Christ has seated us in heavenly places, right? That God has seated us in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So much so, he's raised us up into that place where he is and seated us there with him. Amen? That's who we are spiritually. Positionally, we are there before God. Amen? And in this earthly body, okay, our, 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 our soul is being sanctified, okay, even though the body is wasting away. But ultimately, even the body is going to be glorified, amen? But this process, we call it sanctification, or we could call it something real simple like Christian maturity, okay? As we mature in Christ, as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, we are being sanctified. We are taking on the image of God. We are taking on the image of Christ. We are being transformed from glory to glory. So we are being renewed day by day as we focus on Jesus and we put on the new self, which is in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, for instance, Ephesians 4.23 and following would say, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And here he says that, that we would put on the new self. Okay, look, which is in the likeness of God has been created. You understand? If anyone is in Christ, he is a, he's a new creation. The Spirit of God has come to live inside him, and you have become the new creation of God. The old creation, listen, it's dying. It's perishing. Ultimately, it's going to be destroyed by God and by fire. Okay? The new creation, listen, if any man is in Christ, if any woman or man is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. Okay, and so the apostle calls us and he says, put on the new self, (laughs) 
Put him on like a garment and wear him. Walk by the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Cognitively take this thing and this thing to mind and to heart and walk in it, he says. Amen? Many of us know that struggle with the flesh. We're in an ongoing process, are we not? And every day we got to wake up and we got to put on the new man, right? Because the old man's there, grumpy as he is, right? <laughs> right? Every morning we wake up, he's there and he's dying and he's perishing and he's full of lies and deceit, isn't he? He stinks. By now he stinketh. Doesn't he? He's there every day when you wake up. Right? But as I often say, as I've heard John MacArthur say and others who've preached on the subject, you got to hack Agag to pieces. You understand? No room for the flesh in the life of a Christian. We've got to mortify. Right? The sin. That's in our hearts and in our minds. We've got to put that old man to death. Right? We've got to put on the new self. Right? And this is why Paul gives us very practical teaching. Right? He tells us, put away from yourselves anger and malice and immorality and and corrupt speech. And he goes through these whole big lists of things of what it looks like, right, to put off the old man. And then he says, put on the new man who is created in true righteousness and holiness. Right? And he says, as God's uh, chosen people, he says, put on love and humility, right? I'm thinking of Colossians 2.13 or 3.13 and following there, where he's cataloging for us what it looks like to put on the new man, to put on patience and kindness and compassion and humility and to bear with one another and forgive one another whatever grievances you have, right? And he's calling us to put on that new man who is in us by the Spirit of God. Amen? Which is what he's saying there in Ephesians 4. And in Second Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, he says this. He says, We do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying. Okay? The outer man, what's that? The body, uh, including the flesh, right? <laughs> Which is the old man of sin that lives inside the heart, right? As well as the body, right? That outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Now, what's the inner man? That's the new creation that is in us by the Holy Spirit. The nature of God has been implanted in our souls. We are now the temple of the living God, and God is transforming us and making us to be like Christ. Amen? He says that new man, he says, that inner man, is being renewed day by day. And he describes, for momentary light affliction, that is, the things, the trials, the troubles, the world around you that you're facing on a day-by-day, okay, which is most definitely an affliction. (laughs) Amen? And some of us are afflicted more than others, right? But the fact of the matter is, that momentary light affliction, look, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Paul says, he says that faith that is working in you and that spirit of God who is working in you to transform you into the likeness of Christ is leading you to a weight of glory. He says that you can't even compare to the afflictions that you're facing now. Are you with me? That's what he's communicating. 
And he goes on and he says there, for while we look not at the things which are seen, right, this body that's dying and fading away, what instead at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Okay, and of course, in that case, he's 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 talking about taking up your cross and following Christ, mortifying the old man and living in the new man, which he's going to go on in chapter five then to begin to talk about the glory. And we're going to mention that here as well. But think about this. We are God's new creation being fashioned in his very likeness. Family, this is a gospel promise. This is what God is promising in the gospel. He's promising to make you a new creation that is being fashioned in his very likeness so that you take on his virtue, you take on his patience, you take on his kindness, you take on his wisdom, you take on his love and his mercy and his humility. These things become ours. These are gospel promises. Let me tell, let me tell you about healing, okay? Let me tell you what I need to be healed from. You with me? I know there's more grumpy bears out there than you want to admit. I'm sorry. (laughs) There's one. We just roused him from his cave. He must have been hibernating, right? No, he just came to church and put on his church face. Few you did that too, huh? I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Is it inappropriate for me to tease? No. You sure? Okay. All right. Okay. <clears throat> this is a profound gospel promise. Jesus promised this wonderful blessing of the spirits and dwelling power to all who believe in him. John 7:37 Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his inmost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So understand what Jesus says. He says, He who believes in me from his inmost being will flow rivers of living water. Imagine what Jesus is trying to describe. Amen? He's talking about the fact that the Holy Spirit of God is going to come to live inside the soul of him who believes in Jesus. And that thing is going to well up like a fountain of living water. And Jesus doesn't just call it a fountain. He says it's a river of living water. You understand? This is what your Christian experience should be like. This is, this is normative for the Christian life. You should expect that the Spirit of God is in your soul like a fountain, like a river up overflowing with grace and with glory and with virtue, family. If it's not, you're anemic. You're not feeding on the word and and meditating on the word daily like you should. And if you will, let me tell you, you'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, which brings forth its fruit in its season. And whatsoever he does, he prospers. And listen, his leaf does not wither. 
You understand? This is how the Bible describes those who love God and who have been transformed by his spirit. These are the very words of Jesus. He who believes in me from his inmost being will flow rivers of living water. That's a gospel promise, family. And rather than living our life in, ho- in, in, in despair and in darkness and in depression, which so many are facing without Christ, let me tell you, Christ offers healing. He offers hope to all who will trust him, to all who will turn their back on their sin and come to him for the healing and believe his words of life and of healing. Amen? Are you with me? As this gospel promise of sanctification is taking place, we are literally taking on and enjoying the very nature of God. The Holy Spirit is now producing in us the very life and character of God so that we are said to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Now think about this. The Bible talks about the fact that there are, in Galatians 5, in that context, Paul is kind of telling the Galatians, look, you need to walk by the Spirit because the Spirit and the flesh, they're contrary to one another. And he's telling the church, he says, you, you listen to uh, the works of the flesh, you better watch out, he says, or you're going you're gonna to devour one another. And he's trying to tell them to not let these divisions, right, over the false teachings of the Judaizers, to come in and destroy their unity and their harmony. Then he goes on and he describes what is the work of the flesh and what is the fruit of the spirit. Now think about how he describes those things. One is the work of the flesh. So if you will, it's the work that the flesh does. The flesh is about its work. It's a human thing. But when he talks about the fruits of the spirit, listen, they're a fruit. They're a product of what? Of the spirit, not of the natural man. Are you with me? They are the fruit of the Spirit of God indwelling. And that's why he tells the Christians, walk in the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the sinful nature. He's saying, put on the Spirit of God. Let your mind and your heart be transformed by the renewing of your mind and by the knowledge of God, so much so that you begin to bear the fruit of His Spirit dwelling in you. Are you with me? And that's where we get this great Uh, passage of scripture in Galatians 5 22 he says but the fruit of the spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control against such things there is no law you see those are the character and the virtues of God living in us by his spirit family And if we will surrender to his lordship and walk in the spirit, those are the things we're going to partake of. We're going to eat the good fruit of the spirit. Okay? Which is actually lengthier than just that list. Right? The fruit in this passage is singular. It talks about all of the virtues of God, if you will, that are there by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And here he catalogs a few. But how good they are. Right? And this is what we live for. You know, if you got your eyes on something any lower, change that whole direction. This is what we live for. You know, you're in that context wherever you are, your marriage, your family, your, your, your co-workers, whatever. Look, start to pursue love. Start to pursue joy and peace and kindness and patience. Start to pursue gentleness and humility and compassion. Make those things your passion. Amen? You'll be amazed. 
at what God will do in your life and how he will transform you so that you are a lover of those good things and that your affections are set on those good things which are the very nature of God. Let me tell you, you will become a partaker of the divine nature. But first you have to worship him. First you have to look at God and say, God, your love is amazing. God, the joy that you give, it is powerful. And when you look at God and you see the virtues of God, family, you have to worship God. When, when God becomes that thing you ascribe worth to, you begin to love those things about God so much so that you begin to become them. You become what you worship. You become what you ascribe value to. Are you with me? And so this fruit of the Spirit, this is what defines our lives as Christians. You know, if we go into your house and there's nothing but strife and anger and discord and fighting and factions and, you know, one's going to begin to wonder what spirit dwells there. Are you with me? Or maybe that's going on inside your own heart. And you need to begin to wonder, have I been transformed? Which is a good question to ask, by the way. You need to test yourself to see if you're of the faith. Here's a good test. Are these the sincere desire of your heart? Do you long for love and for joy and for peace and for patience? Even though that old man is a vicious old man who keeps coming back and wants to fight and looks for a thousand occasions in a day to do it, (laughs) right? I know, I face it every day. I got to kill the old man too. I got the old man too. Even though I'm longing for love and for peace and for joy and for patience and striving to put those things on. Amen? Are you with me? You see, non-Christians, that battle's not even happening. Right? If you're struggling and it's a battle, that's a good sign. (laughs) Okay? But listen, all these things are ours. We possess the spirit indwelling. Let me tell you, God's going to finish what he starts. Are you with me? In these we are partaking in and enjoying the good fruits of God's character. This is a revelatory process whereby God is revealing himself in us and through us. Now, I want to explain this to you. Sanctification is, in one aspect, a revelatory process. Now, what in the world do I mean by revelatory? Here's what I mean, family. Remember 2 Corinthians 3.18? We are what? Beholding in a mirror. The glory of the Lord. Now, what is glory? Tell me. What's the essential nature of glory? It's light. Okay? It's light. Now, what is light? Light is that which causes the eye to see. Right? If there's no darkness, if there's no light, what is there? Darkness and you can't, you can't see anything. Right? Now, we're talking about light here. We're talking about light. We're talking about revealing Right? We're talking about glory. Okay? And in the context of 2 Corinthians 3.18, we're beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord and we're what? Being transformed into the same image. Now we're talking about change. Change by revelation. Are you with me? So here's what's happening. As we come to know God and know Jesus Christ, through the manifestation of Jesus in the flesh as recorded for us in the Word of God, okay? 
we begin to see Jesus and come to know him, then we experience him and we have an ongoing personal relationship with him through prayer and meditation on the word, right? What happens is God is revealing himself to us. Okay, this is what's been happening. God's been revealing himself ever since we were created on the earth. And the revelation of God has been progressive. It's been progressing in intensity and it's, it's, it's been progressing in its broadness. The whole scope of it has has been intensely increasing as time has gone on, okay? But listen to what's happening now in the gospel. In the gospel, God's come to live inside of us. And now he's revealing himself to us so much so that that re- revealing is changing and transforming us. It's morphing us into his very character so that as we see him, here's the deal. The spirit of God is in you. This is why grace is irresistible. The Spirit of God is in you so that you love what is good and true and noble and righteous and holy. Okay? He changed your nature so that you love those things. So now what he's doing is he's revealing to you the essential nature of what those things are. And as you see them, you long for them and hunger for them. And they become the very affections of your heart. Okay? That's what Jonathan Edwards wrote about. Big thick book called The Religious Affections. This is what he's talking about. He's discussing how this revelatory process is transforming us into the very nature of God. We're participating in the divine nature. We're being transformed so that when we finally see him, we shall be like him, John says, for we shall see him as he is. We'll finally have the full revelation, right? And what a day of transformation that's going to be. So the righteous will shine like the glory of the sun, like the stars forever and ever, Jesus says, Matthew 13. Right? There's going to be a lot of glory going on when that day comes. But the the fact of the matter is, family, listen, the sanctification process, it's a revelatory process. That's why it's so important for you to be regularly in the word of God and contemplating and meditating on the word of God. Because as you do that, it is transforming you into the image of Christ. You want to see a Christian with weak faith, with anemic faith? I'll show you a Christian who's not reading their Bible, and who doesn't love their Bible, and who's not in their Bible regularly. Okay? It's the same reason why we struggle with with great bouts with sin and with worldliness and all kinds of things. Because we're not feasting and drinking from that fountain of the character and nature of God. If we'll get our eyes focused on that thing, let me tell you, it will change us. And we will begin to become like God. Okay? So, I want to end here, but I want to show you how this verse in 2 Peter, it's at the bottom of 109. 2 Peter 1, 2 through 4. Is describing this revelatory process. Look what he says. The first thing, verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of Jesus of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, look what he's saying. And if you look at the diagram that I have on 110, he says, grace and peace are multiplied to us. How? By the knowledge of God. Now, what is that? Right. Well, that's as as you come to know God. Right. Okay. So how do you come to know God? Well, you, you come to know him because he's, he lives in you by his spirit and you have a relationship with him. That's knowing God, okay? But how is that knowledge informed? 
about who God is and how God is and what's glorious about God and all of those things by the written word, right? Or should I say through the written word by the indwelling spirit? Because here's what happens. The, the man sees the word and it's through the agency of what that word is communicating that the spirit takes it and applies it to the new creation of God so that we are transformed and become like him. You see, sanctification is the spirit's work. The spirit is doing it by revealing God to us. Okay, this is exactly what Peter's describing. Look what he says. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, right? Through what? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And look how Peter wants to make sure we get this point really good. He says, look, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Now, what is that? The promises. (laughs) Where are those recorded, right? Well, for us, Genesis through Revelation. Amen? Right? In Peter's day, maybe, you know, the entire Old Testament and possibly half the New Testament, something like that. Right? But the fact of the matter is, right, he's given us these great and magnificent promises. For what? He says there, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature. You see what he's saying? As, as you take on the understanding, the revealing of the great and magnificent promises of who God is and what he has done, his person and his work. Okay? We are therefore partaking of the divine nature and becoming like God. Family, this is a glorious gospel promise. It's the most glorious gospel promise there is. And that's why Jesus says this, In John 17, he says, this is eternal life to know the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Because when you come to know God in all of his fullness, you have been transformed. Amen. You with me? That's the process of sanctification that is taking place in the life of the believer. And it's a glorious thing. Let me tell you, God doesn't just promise to heal you. He promises to change you and transform you so that you become like him. Amen. And John writes and he says, see how great a love the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. He says, for this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, he says, now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him just as he is. You see, in that sanctification, that revelatory process, that's a great struggle and a battle right now, right? It's ultimately going to culminate in glorification. It's going to culminate in you being transformed into his very image and your lowly earthly body being transformed to be like his glorious body. Okay? And at that point, family, let me tell you, eternal bliss, world without end. And I want to tell you, even the capacities that we have to enjoy the virtues of God are going to be maximized at that time for an enjoyment, something far beyond anything we can comprehend now. Are you with me? It's almost like the blessing is so magnanimous that you you couldn't describe it if you had 10,000 years. Are you with me? It's something God will have to do in us 
and by the Spirit so that we can ultimately experience it. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, these truths are high. God, they are so far up in heaven, even beyond our reach. But yet by your spirit, God, you have been pleased to speak about them and to point us to them. And not only that, Lord, by your spirit, you've made it the longing and the hunger of our hearts. And so, God, I pray, increase that consuming fire that you are in our hearts. Cause us to hunger and thirst for your righteousness more and more, dear God. And Lord, I pray that we would see this as the great blessing and promise of the gospel that you have a new creation in Christ Jesus and they are the church, God, your dwelling, you're in, you're the place that you inhabit. Father, help us to see these great realities, I pray. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear because of Jesus' precious blood. Amen.